Hi, this is Steve Nellick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 33, Technical Feasibility. Sometimes technology moves forward so quickly, it can be hard to tell what's a genuine breakthrough versus what's a pie-in-the-sky idea that's just waiting for someone to invent one vital component before the whole thing works brilliantly. Of course, we can generally depend upon SpaceX not to deliver something that's just smoke and mirrors. For example... Dear Cheap Astronomy, can you talk us through the recent Falcon 9 rocket landing on water? Yes, we can. On Friday the 8th of April 2016, a two-stage SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida. As with any launch from Florida, the rocket flew east in a parabolic arc, since, near the equator, the Earth is rotating towards the east at nearly 1,700 kilometres an hour, so it makes no sense to fly west and subtract that advantage from your launch. And of course, flying east from Florida takes you right over the Atlantic Ocean. The first stage booster of a Falcon 9 raises the rocket to about 80 kilometres, at which point it is travelling at about Mach 10 which is over 12,000 kilometres an hour. The first stage then separates at around two and a half minutes after launch. If that was that, the first stage would then continue passively following a descending parabolic arc until it hit the ocean about 1,000 kilometres offshore. But that doesn't have to be that. SpaceX has been running Falcon 9 booster landing tests since 2013, the first of which involves setting the booster down to a soft landing on the ocean's surface, after which it just sank. But it was those tests that established and refined the booster return process, which is as follows. At the point of stage one separation, the rocket has already left most of the atmosphere behind so the separated Stage 1 booster cannot manoeuvre aerodynamically. Instead, it uses cold gas thrusters to turn itself around. From there, it can either coast back down to Earth on its parabolic trajectory, or do a boost-back burn to shorten its return trajectory. This boost-back burn just uses three of the nine Merlin engines. And then, just before it re-enters the atmosphere proper, the first stage undertakes what's called the re-entry burn to further slow its descent and to further modify its trajectory. And it's about then that the grid fins are deployed. Grid fins are used to help steer a range of long tubular craft which fly at supersonic speeds, and which are mostly missiles. Grid fins are generally squarish, and they really are grids, like a metallic lattice, allowing air to flow through them so they don't get ripped off a rocket travelling at supersonic speeds, 
but they are still able to create some aerodynamic drag. The Falcon 9 first stage booster has four grid fins, which are folded against the rocket at launch to minimise drag, and then later deployed on descent. Each grid fin is a bit less than 2 metres square and can open right out to 90 degrees or more, as well as each being able to be turned back and forth. The combined action of the four grid fins gives the booster roll, pitch and yaw control up to 20 degrees from its general direction of motion once it's flying in dense atmosphere. And while all that is happening... The rocket's target, the ASDS, or Autonomous Spaceport Drone Ship, is waiting in the expected landing zone, and can maintain an exact GPS-determined position using a set of azimuth-mounted engines. On its final approach to the ASDS, the Stage 1 booster is usually firing just one of its Merlin engines to further reduce its velocity eventually down to zero, as well as providing further steering via gimbling of the engine. That is, the firing engine is able to pivot around slightly, altering its direction of thrust and helping to guide the booster to a pinpoint landing. On its final approach, the booster also deploys its four landing legs, which, like the grid fins, were folded up against the side of the rocket at launch. And so, about nine minutes after launch, the Stage 1 booster is able to settle down gently on a hard surface. The rationale for this complex retrieval process is that it costs about $60 million to build a Falcon 9 rocket, but it only costs about $200,000 to refuel it. So if you could reuse a spent booster, after some appropriate refurbishment, that may reduce the total build and launch costs of a Falcon 9 by around 30%. We are yet to see a Falcon 9 Stage 1 booster reused. One of the retrieved boosters has undergone static launch tests. That is, not actually launching it, but firing up its engines as though it were going to launch. This was partially successful, and like all the tests that have gone before, it collected some valuable data that will make future attempts work better. For now, the booster retrieval process remains cutting-edge engineering. SpaceX's Elon Musk anticipates a few more RUDs before they've ironed all the bugs out. RUD stands for Rapid Unscheduled Disassembly, an engineering euphemism for explosion. And thanks me. One hopes SpaceX's most recent RUD in September 2016 won't keep it grounded much longer. But there's technical feasibility, and then there's technical feasibility. Here's an example of something that's technically feasible, if you allow a bit of hand-waving around some of the physics involved, and some flexibility about some of the components that are more conceptual than actual. Dear Cheap Astronomy, 
Is the Milner-Hawking mission to Alpha Centauri technically feasible? The announcement of Breakthrough Starshot, a mission to send a gram-scale spacecraft to Alpha Centauri at 20% of the speed of light, is a good example of describing what's technically feasible versus what's technically practical. Gram scale means something that weighs a gram or so, some of which will be payload, although most of it will be its light sail. The idea of the mission is to use high-power lasers to hyper-accelerate a low-mass light sail craft up to around 20% of light speed, which is about 60,000 kilometres a second. For reference, Voyager 1 currently the furthest human-made spacecraft out there, is travelling at about 17 kilometres a second. At 60,000 kilometres a second, a spacecraft could get to the Alpha Centauri system in about 20 years. So yes, that much is technically feasible. But it is doubtful we could achieve pinpoint accuracy when aiming a spacecraft at a target that's 4.3 light-years away, using what's going to be a single-thrust manoeuvre. Even with a hugely powerful and tightly focused laser array, the power and the push provided by the laser beam will still attenuate over astronomical distances, so the spacecraft will be largely relying on an early push to get it up to speed, leaving it to then hopefully coast on a direct line to its target. If it does veer off course, well, that's probably that. It's not intended that a gram-scale spacecraft will have any onboard propulsion per se. There is talk of adding photon thrusters, although since these haven't been invented yet, it's a little unclear what they actually are, and let's face it, Photons just don't have the momentum required to significantly alter the course of an object with a forward vector of 60,000 kilometres a second. And that brings us to another non-trivial problem. The darn thing is travelling at 60,000 kilometres a second. Space is not a perfect vacuum, and hitting a small dust particle at 60,000 kilometres a second would probably spell the end of your gram-scale spacecraft. And even if it did somehow survive the collision, there's no way it would remain on course. And even putting all that to one side, there are also issues at the Alpha Centauri end. Having got up to 60,000 kilometres a second and coasted the remaining distance at a constant velocity in a vacuum... There are no mechanisms available to slow the light sail down as it approaches its destination. The light pressure of the Alpha Centauri stars would have a minor effect at best, so the spacecraft will be whizzing through the system very, very fast, covering around 200 million kilometres every hour. At that speed, it would take just over a day to cross a distance equal to the full diameter of Pluto's orbit around our Sun. There may be opportunities to gather some science data at that speed, 
But there's no way it would be capturing high-resolution imagery of an exoplanet's surface, assuming it was lucky enough to be flying anywhere near an exoplanet during its brief transit of the system. And of course, this raises some more problems with this plan. Firstly, what sort of data collection instruments could a gram-scale spacecraft be able to carry? And secondly, and perhaps most importantly of all, how would the spacecraft get any of the data it collects back to Earth? Here, the project proponents appeal to Moore's Law, anticipating exponential technological advances in future years that will overcome any cheap naysaying you might hear today. So a gram-scale spacecraft will have its own power supply, cameras, photon thrusters, and a deep space data transmission system, all apparently based on photonics and a bit of hand-waving. While it's certainly not out of the question that such advances may come, it does beg the question as to why we don't make that the primary objective of the project. That is, why not start by developing a gram-scale spacecraft that really could do something useful when it gets to Alpha Centauri? Because there is a lot of useful work that such a spacecraft could do locally. And this might help pass the time while we work out exactly how we are going to get the darn thing to Alpha Centauri. And thanks me. So maybe this is how you tell the difference between something that's technically feasible and something that's technically feasible. Things that actually work tend to blow up sometimes, while really exciting and totally untested ideas are expected to launch without a hitch and within budget. And that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got an untested idea that's so exciting you're ready to explode, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and let us undergo a rapid unscheduled disassembly for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.